Ladies and gentlemen, it's here. Whether you wanted it or not. Monday. It is Monday, Monday, Monday. And there is a new Voxology podcast episode, as you well know, because you're listening. And if you're not listening, you're not hearing any of this. That's meta, the whole thing. I know. So we're excited uh, to have you uh, tuning in today. We're excited to be a small part of your life. Tim. Yes. Do you have low T? Do I have low T <laughs> testosterone? Yeah. Obviously. Well, since we're talking about alpha males, I am practicing reading read uh, reading ad copy. Um, Tim, okay. yes. do you have low T? I think so. I would guess yes. Yeah. And And certainly your facial hair says no, but... Everything else says Those yes. All implants. Um, I have low T. You, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I don't know. I was thinking of that. Uh, Tim, for my low T issues, I take Centrum Adults Fifty Plus Multi Gummies, mm. and um, I'm not an alpha. I'm not a beta. I'm an Omega man, ladies and gentlemen. Um, I, do, I just don't, I was trying to think of how many low T commercials I've listened to in my life and it's gotta be in the thousands. It's gotta be in the thousands. Since we got rid of like cable TV, I don't know, over a decade or more, I have like just with streaming, there has been no commercials in my life for a while, except for like the repeating ones on YouTube or something. Ah, well, that's good. I'm out of the loop. Yeah, you I are. Even, I wouldn't even know if I have low T. No one's telling me. <laughs> um, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for tuning in today. I want to say a quick thank you to uh, three people. I want to thank Jennifer and April and Kevin. Um, we're fans of anyone named Kevin, uh, which is the masculine form of Karen, evidently. Um, and uh, <laughs> we just want to say thank you to the three of you for coming on the support team, ladies and gentlemen. Um, that's, that's something that boosts our T levels. I'll tell you that right now. That's right. So thank you. If you, um, it's end of the year and last year there were a bunch of people who did sort of end of the year gifts to the Voxology podcast. We're a tax deductible 501c3. Um, once you give to other more important ministries, if there's anything left over, uh, we'd love it. That'd be great. You could give on two platforms, tithe.ly. And then um, Patreon, and you can find information on the Voxology podcast. Now, um, we have decided, Tim and I, have decided that there are going to be, we're going to introduce a bunch of new segments into mm. the podcast. Um, it's what the cool kids are doing, and never let it be said that we're years too late to a party. That's right. So we're going to have different segments. <clears throat> and today's segment is really an old segment that we do quite often, but Tim will somehow jazz this up into some fun, root, doot, 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 some doot. sort of segment. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Voxology Mailbag. Mailbag. And, and there it was. <laughs> Whatever Tim did in there is going to be epic. <laughs> Whatever right. I did after we said this, but before you've listened to it, is magical. Correct. Correct. <laughs> this is we'll a super meta it. episode. We'll fix it in post, is what they say. 
Um, all right, we have a couple of great, great questions, uh, emails in. Um, I agree with your thoughts, says listener number one, that we hold young men to this old ideal of a college degree, a family, and a house in the suburbs. But I think what makes that attractive and easy to promote is that it is a clear standard, so it is clear, that holds some biblical wisdom, at least I think so. Uh, that standard promotes the value of work, the value of loving your family, marriage as a metaphor for Christ and the church, etc. But we would agree that this standard falls short of what it means to live in new creation dynamics. All right, so the 1950s standard isn't, isn't all bad, let's say that, but it falls short of new creation dynamics. The standard promotes behavior modification and sin management more than the heart posture changes and living as an image bearer. Oh, I like that. Yeah. So my follow-up questions would be this, Tim. Do you have low T? <laughs> if this standard is imperfect, is there another standard that we should give men at my age? Uh, or is the answer simply go read the Sermon on the Mount and do that? Yeah. Or is trying to set a standard always going to lead us to a watered-down version of following Jesus? And perhaps more challenging... Is there a standard of being a man or woman, for that matter, of Christ that doesn't lead to a performance of gender, as some sociologists have discussed? Hmm. So what a great, what a great set of questions. And this was the original emailer on this uh, question to begin with. So question number one, is there another standard, right? If, if the 1950 standard isn't all bad, but it falls short of new creation dynamics, is there another standard? Uh, and, and... Or is the uh, even attempt to set a standard falling short of new creation dynamics? And that's where I would land personally, yeah. not as an expert uh, on masculinity, certainly, or as a sociologist or psychologist in any arenas at all. But it seems on its face that, that the, the attempt to find a standard um, is itself a futile and, and already an old creation dynamic that's creeping in. Yeah, because what happens, you either hit it and then you plateau. Right. And you're not living up to the expectations of growing and learning that the Sermon on the Mount does kind of push for, or you don't hit it and then you just live in shame of not being that idea. Yeah, yes. And where, I mean... <sighs> I don't see gendered normative ideals. What I see are um, instructions to uh, to husbands, instructions to wives, instructions to parents, all falling within kind of the realm of uh, household codes like we talked about last episode. Would you call them basic instructions before leaving Earth? Yes. I, I think a great, that would make a great acrostic for the Bible. Um Yes, absolutely I would do that. But I think the, the human attempt to find a standard that is clear and consistently applied is part of the problem. And that's, I think that's one of the reasons, and I don't know this at all. This is totally speculation on my part. Um, but one of the reasons why we don't have a lot of detailed gendered info about Jesus is, I think, because we would be tempted to somehow derive a standard. If we knew what he looked like, we knew how tall he was, 
Um, right? We just don't have any of that. Like, okay, so he was the carpenter's son, but we have no, no testimony about things he built or like how good he was, or, I mean, it's just like the, 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 the test, the gospels are totally uninterested in that sort of biographical detail. And I think there's a reason perhaps that we would want to set a pattern out of that. And so the pattern we get from Christ can be followed um, as a man or as a woman, but it's not a gendered pattern itself. And so to turn it into some sort of gendered pattern, I think is part of the old creation dynamic we're working away from. So following the Sermon on the Mount can look a lot of different ways as a guy and a lot of different ways as a woman. And to, to begin to prejudge those according to some other classification, I think is where we get into trouble. So, so if, if we want to see what full humanity looks like, that's Jesus. Yeah, and what is the what is the trap of humanity, like at the very beginning of the Bible, defining good she, and evil? Yeah, and define within yourself, like yes. you, like you get to you know God doesn't want you to have this because of X, Y, and Z. Like you, you, you. So it's like right off the bat, as soon as we're trying to fulfill an idea of what we can do individually rather than collectively or uh, communally. Which seems to be what the sermon points to. Right. We're already off the bat. So that, that's what that, that makes me think is like, how do I become the best standard man? I'm already like inward focused completely. Totally. The question isn't how do I, how, what's biblical manhood? The question is, what does it mean to be human? Yeah. And that <clears throat> humanity then gets expressed in gendered ways, but to universalize those gendered ways uh, is to create another category as you're saying um in that that will simply be used again to classify insiders and outsiders and the better than the rest and so on and so on and so on so the rest is commentary the rest is commentary so to our dear listener and dear emailer i love this follow-up this was absolutely a genius uh set of questions this was the original yes masculinity email yep or emailer email er and uh so actually um and this somebody this is somebody going to law school he kind Mm -hmm. of includes at the end which is freaking awesome so to be a fully human uh follower of jesus in law school is just going to look so different and and then (laughs) and then you add all of the beautiful diversity of human personality and background and experience and brokenness and that whole thing gets cobbled together so that there just isn't there isn't a, a blueprint out there to define biblical manhood or womanhood, and to just yeah. insist that there is um, is is just such a wasted and futile effort. And ultimately, I think is an old creation dynamic that plays right into the hands of the powers totally. and principalities. So that was email number one yeah. for Voxology mailbag. Email number two. This one's funny. And um, hi again, folks, and then bracket, insert the names of all family members of both co-hosts in the order that you feel most appropriate and deserving of honor. (laughs) Um, My past emails have come from a deep place of emotional pain, but I'm doing a lot better. He talks about being raised, um, and and I love this. He says, I never got the message 
that as a Christian, I was supposed to be manly and aggressive. In fact, I got the opposite message in the extreme that I was supposed to be a good person, that conflict was bad, and I'm supposed to sacrifice for everyone as Christ did for the church, put everyone else's wishes and desires ahead of mine, etc. The lesson I learned is a significant reason that I wasn't able to recognize and turn away from the abuse I have endured. Mm-hmm. Now, just stop there for a second. And, I, and I've, seen, I've seen this, and this is where like the Eldridge stereotype of masculinity will mock the Mr. Rogers stereotype of masculinity, right? That, that we're not called to be nice and we're not called to just be tame and safe. And there's something that appeals to a, a, a lot of us men when we're told that we're supposed to be wild and woolly and you know crazy and aggressive and whatever and else. Suppress and all of... your emotions and trauma from your life. Yes, and, and instead be nice. Yeah. And so I, um, when I was in intensive therapy, um, I, I, the, the, the therapist I was meeting with, um, <laughs> and I don't recommend this book, but it, 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 it was something that she brought up and I went and explored it. She had me read a book called No More Mr. Nice Guy. Now, again, that is, I don't recommend this book. It's whacked in some ways, and I don't know. But the premise or the point she was trying to make was that I had spent so much of my life creating a false self that was really palatable to the Christian audiences, um, and, and, and that I was nice, never angry, a well-loved, well-respected, you know, blah, 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 blah. And then that was important to me. That wasn't just yeah. a false self. That was like things that I wanted to hear back from other people. And the no more Mr. Nice Guy thing wasn't, the point of it wasn't, hey, guys, you can go ahead and be jerks and embrace toxic masculinity. The, the, the point of it was that niceness is actually used in a way as aggressiveness um, to try to hide trauma, hurt, manage, you know, and manipulate the impressions of others and so on. And I was like, oh my goodness. And, and I, it's been a couple of years since I've read it. But when I read that part of his email, that that's me. Like mm-hmm. that's, I was totally raised kind of in that environment. And that's why initially the wild at heart stuff was so attractive. I was like, oh, you mean it's okay. Um, you know, to, to be violent or it's okay to be aggressive and assertive and all of that like went against everything in my kind of masculine category. So man, I totally understand where this, this person is coming from. He then transitions into talking about anger, which, and that's the nice guy thing that, so, so that's one of the points that the author writes uh, is that is that nice guys are some of the most angry people you'll ever meet? Um, <laughs> Just bottles up until that last moment when it yes, 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 yes. So he says one pa- impact of all this is a subconscious fear of my own anger, totally, um, to where I can't access it when needed, mm. right? In instances where I'm protecting myself or others from emotional abuse or grieve the wounds that I've suffered. Since we live in a broken world, there are times when anger is appropriate. And Jesus himself was angry at times. Totally. I want to ask something like, when does healthy, protective anger, look? what does it look like in someone who wants to follow in Jesus' footsteps? 
but a combination of the self-sacrificial message I learned growing up and a dearth of times when Jesus used anger to protect makes me feel like that's the wrong question to ask. Hmm. Um, I don't know. I think that's a great question to ask. Absolutely. There were, he said, I found, did some searching four times when Jesus was angry in the gospels. There are four times. Um, Interestingly, Jesus was not angry when people brought the women caught in adultery to him. And he wasn't angry with the Pharisees and the Romans for his arrest and execution. Deeply sorrowful, but not angry. Um, Jesus didn't need to express anger because he wasn't ultimately threatened. His death was part of what he came for. But the rest doesn't quite line up for me. Why wasn't Jesus ever shown expressing anger in defense of the oppressed and downtrodden like the prophets do? Um... What will it take, and this is, he said, this is a question you probably can't answer. What will it take for me to find reasons and limits for anger so that I feel safe expressing it healthily? Oh, goodness. What a great (laughs) set of questions. Oh, my word. Um, So, first of all, holy cow. Thank you for emailing this in. Um, Secondly, I'm sorry for all of the abuse that you have endured um, as a, a specific view of masculinity was deemed Christian and any deviation from that was deemed non-Christian. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> thirdly, to be fully human is to feel the full range of emotions and to express them. And I know there, there are several times in the gospels when Jesus was angry. I think there were probably more um if he was if he was human in every way except without sin um i'm assuming there were irritations and frustrations and he was trying to build a table and slammed his thumb and you know said something like i don't know what he would say yeah yeah me that's funny that's funny nice one tim um and uh, so so there was a guy who i heard teach on anger once who asked two very, very important questions that revolutionized my anger. It didn't change the way that I'm angry or that I get angry, but it changed how I viewed and what I did with the anger I felt inside. Um, The first one was, notice who Jesus gets mad at. And you've already done that. Um, Jesus gets mad at stubborn religious leaders who refuse to show compassion to a man with a withered hand. He gets angry with his disciples who keep a child from him. He gets indignant. He gets angry at those who perverted the temple into a place of commerce. Um, Notice what he doesn't get angry at. See, I think he gets angry on behalf of the oppressed. I think those instances of anger were exactly the instances you're talking about, where he was angry on behalf of the oppressed, just like his dad is. Um... Uh, so one question is, who does he get mad at? Well, he got mad at religious leaders who um, were perverting the, the heart of God um, and taking God's name in vain in order to keep uh, perpetuating injustice. Um, he doesn't get mad at these broken, like he doesn't get mad at the rich young ruler who walks away because of his great wealth. He doesn't get mad at the woman caught in adultery. He doesn't get mad at the questions that he gets asked from sincere people who are confused. He doesn't get mad at uh, the the sinful woman that anoints him at, at the dining party. Like, like, like if the heart of somebody is open towards Jesus, 
um, even in its ignorance or sinfulness, there's no no judgment or anger um, except just a deep desire to to help and to rescue. But to the religious leadership, there is, in their stubbornness and in their self-righteousness, there is a bit of anger there. Now, the, if you just left it there, it would be not helpful. Because right. then the question becomes, what does Jesus do with his anger? And in the case of the man with the shriveled hand, he heals the man in front of everyone. Yeah. In the case of the indignant uh, when he was indignant towards his disciples, he blesses and censors a, a child who uh, was not a, a censored group in the first century. In, in the case of the temple, he symbolically shuts it down and replaces it with himself. So his anger is aroused at the same thing that Yahweh's anger is aroused at, which is the injustice and harm that people do to each other, particularly in the name of religion. But what he does with it is anger leads to healing and blessing and justice and the creation of something more beautiful and better. And so I feel lots of anger towards, um, let's say, religious leaders uh, and political leaders who take God's name in vain, just yeah. hypothetically. I feel loads of anger. Um, what I'm permitted to do the range of new creation activities. I'm permitted to you know, speak freely, to speak gently, to call out prophetically, to act symbolically. I'm called to forgive, to lament, to grieve. I'm, I'm invited to be angry and allow that anger to do something constructive rather than just torch something down. So part of the reason I work at a church and part of the reason we do this podcast is because I am angry about the things that are happening in our world. And so there is lots of energy that I feel towards those things in presenting Jesus as a more beautiful and compelling figure than some of these ding-dongs, to use you know Tim Stafford's like right. major epithet, uh, some of these ding-dongs are doing. Now, in terms of what it look, would look like for you, man, that I, I and I know Tim, we're no therapists, baby. And that is a therapist question because how you are going to tap into anger and what that's going to look like, man, that is a trauma. That's got to be a trauma informed journey. Totally. Um, because it can't stay there and poison you. It has to come out and it is coming out. How it comes out and how it comes out healthily, I just, I, I hesitate to speak to any of that because I am so not an expert. Yeah. What do you think? I have so many thoughts on this topic. I'm not going to give them all. But, Why not? Give Well, because it's a lot. I was actually thinking, I didn't know we were going to read this, but I was actually thinking about this before this topic because I was thinking about a conversation I had this morning about trauma, like generational trauma and somebody inflicting pain upon somebody else who is innocent. And your reaction is an anger that you want to, like I, my reaction was that I wanted to hurt the person who was hurting the person that I care about. Yes. And yes. But what I know is that, and I, I experienced this a lot when I was working in the prison in LA, like what it means to sit with people who have done terrible things, but are looking for redemption or what cycles of trauma cause in people and me being angry at the trauma or angry at the person who has, I don't know, it's, it just gets really complicated. But 
a long time ago, I asked you a question about, in, in my long pursuit of trying to understand the humanity of Jesus, uh, about whether or not, like, Jesus lived without sin, and sin was this idea of missing the mark of being fully human or whatever, and then not yeah. leaning into, so I was like, you know, does that mean that Jesus never experienced, like, the temptation of lust? Or is it that he maybe found someone attractive but did not lean into it and did not become consumed by that thought or that whatever? Yeah. When I think about anger, I think about the problem that I see is that people get consumed by it, and that's Mm. when it becomes the issue is either you don't deal with it and you become consumed by it. Yes. Or you lean into it all the way and you become an angry person that inflicts harm. Is consumed by it. Yeah. And yep. so, like, for me, I used to get really angry, but then, A, yes, therapy is wonderful. Having someone who knows how to diffuse and speak into you is of the most value. And then I started doing things like boxing and, like, sounds dumb, but, like, no. letting out energy because no. anger turns into energy and it yeah. is, can yep. physically consume you, not yeah. just emotionally. And so I started boxing and that was, like, it calmed my mind and it let out mm. physical energy and I don't know. I think there's just ways to, cause I think this email is so right. Like you, there is that weird thing that says anger, you know, don't, it's like, it's demonizing this natural human response. Absolutely. And whereas like, it's not the anger. It's like just how you, how it consumes your, if it becomes your master rather than you. Yep whatever yep this is where low t comes in handy (laughs) (laughs) yes no i think that's so good tim yeah Uh, yeah we don't i mean there is this this and this is what the nice guy thing the book was saying like we've baptized negative emotions as bad yeah and um and we christianize you know the 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 I don't know the absence of those emotions, even if they're just suppressed and pushed underground and exploding out in different ways. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, yes, 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 yes. This would be such a great therapist conversation to have about. It would be like because you know you know my spirited daughter, and she can she can fray every nerve and um, just destroy your patience, and and well up a lot of anger within you and one response to that is to abuse the child right the other response to that is like just learning how to navigate those feelings acknowledging the anger giving yourself space to breathe through it and find but then finding what it is that's causing her to act and how to love her in the stuff that's i don't know it's just everything is so intricate but purposeful yeah and so it's like when we try to all these questions with the biblical manhood stuff always seem to come down to like, what's the easiest route through something? Like, mm. how can I the most easily be a manly man? Or how can I most easily not be an angry person? It's like nothing's, everything has like these grains to it, these ingredients that are so important to acknowledge. And yeah. Yep. yep. Great email. So, great email. We'd encourage you to find a great therapist if you don't already have one. Everybody um, who's listening to this, go find a therapist. Yeah, seriously. If your name includes a consonant or a vowel from the <laughs> or a l- number. alphabet, yes, yes, or a symbol. 
In any language. In any language ever. <laughs> if you have um, a name. No, but I think that's such a profound uh, opposite side of the coin than yeah. the toxic. See, that's as toxic as the aggressive, um, uh, overly aggressive masculinity. But it doesn't, but it's, it never gets labeled the same way. Totally. And so, yes. All right. So where we want to go today. Good stuff, Timothy. Another thing that helps is I started playing Christmas music yesterday. See, that it, makes me angry. Yes. So there's the difference. There's the two sides of the coin. There it is. You're going to have to deal with it because it, <laughs> it removes my anger. First song of the year, Little Drummer Boy. Because oh. um, I like the 1950 style like Christmas music. Yeah. I don't, I don't need Mariah Carey. I don't need the John Lennon or whatever that dumb Beatles yeah, song is. Triggering. Uh, or Wham. The day after Halloween, she released a video of her like in black and white dressed like a witch, like riding this bicycle or something. And she's laughing. Then all of a sudden it just switches to Christmas and she's singing that song. And she's oh, like, it's no. here. And no, no, like, no. Nope. November nope. 1st. I listen to choral music. I listen to like old school, like Gene Autry. You know, when they did them right, Tim. Yeah. yeah. Doggone it. All right. Anyway, so we want to we want to push forward in the biblical masculinity quote unquote conversation. Um, because one of the 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 subheadings around biblical masculinity is that biblical masculinity is finding, according to many, your God-ordained role as a leader. And for a woman, biblical femininity is finding her God-ordained role as a follower. Yeah. And, um, and so we want to start poking into the idea that biblical, whatever biblical masculinity is, which we're saying doesn't exist, but even if you insisted there was such a thing, that that does not mean um, tailored gendered roles in terms of leadership and servitude. Yeah. And I realized that we have, I have great friends and really great thinkers who hold that there are, there, there is great dignity in, in maleness and femaleness, but there are God ordained roles. Yeah. Uh, and there's a wide spectrum, like a wide spectrum. You've got, you've got guys like, um, <clears throat> Piper and Wayne Grudem, who wrote years ago, like, you know, even, even a, a man asking for directions from a female or having a female boss, like that was perverting kind of this created order. And, yeah. and that's nuts. We've also had a complementarian here named Alan Frau, who's a great friend, um, who does a beautiful uh, expression of complementarian in terms of like the motherness and fatherness of a, a, that's needed in a community. Um, and so I want to just acknowledge there is a great spectrum of practice and theory on this. And I also want to acknowledge that uh, there's really intelligent people that disagree. Having said that, um, I've become more convinced than ever that my previous holding of a very soft version of that position was wrong, was an error, and does not faithfully represent the text as it comes to us. And so because this is an issue that is framed in and around the idea of biblical masculinity, the idea of being the spiritual leader, the idea of taking the initiative, um, and, and that that's the role that we're to have and that women have a different role, equally as valuable, but different. 
um, I want to spend just a little time talking about how this plays out and how it's played out in the church. Um, and I want to do a bit of repenting uh, from my holding of the previous view. Make sense? Because, yeah, yeah. I, again, so much of biblical masculinity talk is holding this complementarian view and then playing it out you know, in the household and the church and work and so on. So I want to go after the view that says, hey, there are these preordained roles that are to be expressed in the household, in the church, and in the world, and say, I don't, I don't think there are. So uh, this, for the next half hour, I'm going to give a bunch of disclaimers and introductory thoughts, and then we'll get into um, how the biblical witness to um, biblical, biblical, and I use air quotes, uh, masculinity and femininity as it pertains to roles. All right. So um, the first thing we always, 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 always have to do is to acknowledge the messiness and complexity of the biblical text. Now we did a whole long series of conversations about the messiness and complexity of the biblical text. So I'm not going to rehash that here. But no matter what issue, homosexuality, um, um, you know, meat sacrifice to idols, um, abortion, uh, paying taxes to uh, the United States, how you vote. I mean, all the big cultural topics. Um, with this one, you know, up there at, at near the top of the list, we always have to, we don't come at the text as people who are, are looking up a theological dictionary of, uh, well, all I have to do is look under like, oh, depression. Here's what the Bible says about depression. Totally. Like my Bible had all of those things. If you, yeah. you know, and, and they're just all paragraphs or verses lifted out of context, some of which are helpful and some of, some of which are not. So we have to acknowledge the complexity of the biblical text. And in the biblical text, we find two things happening regarding the role of women in the church. And again, the reason we're focusing on women in the church is because so often the male role is spelled out in contrast to the female role. Mm -hmm. And so I want to argue that that, that whole conversation is, is wrong-headed um, and that there will be instances when women should lead because they're the better leader. And there the, should be instances when men should lead because they're the better leader. There are instances where women should follow. There are instances that men should follow. But here's what's great. There's no absolute standard, nor should there be, to yeah. determine how every marriage or every household or every church is going to work. All right? Yep. So, so what does it mean when we say the Bible is complex and mess messy? We see two <laughs> things in the biblical text. And again, if this is new... We did a whole series of episodes on this that I would highly recommend because Tim is genius. That's right. Um, but on the one hand, we see the affirmation of, of equality in, in, in everywhere, I'm going to argue. But on the other hand, we see the accommodation to patriarchy. Mm -hmm. And we see both of those. So as we've talked about before, the Bible continually holds out the real as something that we should be moving away from towards the God's ideal. The, the vast majority of the Bible isn't God's ideal for human beings. It's triage um, to a sinful humanity. The ideal seems to be in like Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22, and they're 
we get pictures of the ideal, you know, throughout the text, specifically in and around the ministry of Jesus. No question about that. But by and large, and, and an example of this is like um, uh, uh, monogamy. In Genesis 2, one man will leave his family, be united to one woman, they will form one flesh and form a new kinship unit. In page 4, in Genesis 4, we, we, we meet a man who has two wives. And there are warnings about having more than one wife, but ultimately there is a accommodation given in Exodus where if you're going to marry more than one wife, make sure you don't deprive the first one of food, sheltering, and marital rights. All right. Now, is that God's ideal for humanity? No. no. God's ideal for humanity was Genesis 1 and 2. Right, And Jesus refers to this, and Paul, when they talk about sexual ethics. They go back to that ideal. The real, the, the real need, though, was people were going to marry multiple wives, and, and God gives direction towards the ideal, but accommodates himself to the reality of the situation. Make sense? Yep. He does this with divorce. We see this, and this is one of the most profound examples. Um, the ideal was Genesis 2. But men are divorcing their wives. So in Deuteronomy 24, I think, Moses uh, gives a a concession, a a command, that if you're going to divorce your wife, um, uh, give her a certificate of divorce. And then then a huge debate erupts over the basis for that. We've had a couple episodes on divorce. Go to the Sermon on the Mount series for an episode on divorce there, it goes into all of this. But the question that gets presented to Jesus is, can you divorce, can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? Which was based on one reading of the Deuteronomy text. And Jesus says, no, only for marital unfaithfulness can you get divorced. And then they say, holy moly, (laughs) why did Moses give us a command to write certificates of divorce? And Jesus says to them, because he didn't command it, he permitted it because of the hardness of your hearts. Yeah. So you have this interaction between the reality of human fallenness, God's ideal for humanity, and God triaging us towards the ideal. So it's not shocking that in the Bible you find passages that are accommodations to patriarchy. Hmm. This was the world of the Bible in, in both of its Hebrew expressions and its you know, Greek expression. Absolutely. But what you find in the midst of that real are a whole bunch of hints that that is never the ideal that God intended and a bunch of triage towards the ideal. And, um, and so it's not surprisingly that both groups, those who would call themselves complementarians and those that would call themselves egalitarians appeal to the, to the scriptures because there are a bunch of texts that accommodate patriarchy and there are a bunch of texts that give us hints that patriarchy was never God's original intention, nor will it be the final destination of humanity. Yeah. Make sense? Yep. So we have to acknowledge that this is a Bible-based conversation because what people want to say, and I've had, I've had people say this, listen, the minute you change your mind about femininity and biblical femininity, the same arguments you use can be used to affirm homosexuality or to, you know, like leave the faith on a number of other issues. And um, I, I just think that's a very foolish argument that somehow only one side of this is a biblical conversation. I just don't think that's right. true. Yeah. 
And so, so do, do both sides appeal to Bible verses? Of course they do. Absolutely. So acknowledgement number one is that there is complexity and messiness in the text as we both see accommodation and affirmation yeah. of equality. Make, so that's a super important point, and it's going to frame how we do this. Secondly, um, and, and these are from Rich, a guy named Rich Nathan that I thought, I just love the way he worded these, so I, I uh, adapted them. He's but a you pastor can never trust in a guy Columbus. With your first names. The, it's true. It's absolutely true. But this guy was a professor at Ohio State University, so you can trust a, a man who uh, you know goes to that institution. And Elton John. Um, yes, and Tim Stafford. I'm there sure there's go. a Stafford out there with a first name. Probably. Yeah. Stafford. He, Stafford. Yeah. Uh, started a law firm, most likely. <laughs> Um, these brothers? No, it's just me. <laughs> yeah, Stafford and Stafford. Yeah. Um, so the second acknowledgement, and, and these all are massively important for how we understand later texts. The Bible should be interpreted according to the life, teaching, and practices of Jesus. If Jesus is the fullest revelation of the Father, and that's the clear teaching of the New Testament, yeah. and... If Jesus is the, the fullest expression of what it means to be human, then any interpretation we have um, needs to be held up against the character of God revealed in Christ yeah. and the practices of Christ. And the practices of Christ around women were pretty significant. Now, our friend A.J. Levine points out that often the Jewish view of women was overstated or excuse me, in negative terms, like that, that Christians will make a lot of hay around some statements we have in the Talmud about how women shouldn't be trained in Torah, or thank God I'm not a woman. And, and she will continually remind us that you don't have to make Christianity look good by making Judaism look bad. Right. But there is some scholarship around the idea that Jesus was a bit ahead of his time yeah. in how he viewed women. Yeah. Um, inviting uh, Mary to assume the posture of a disciple, being supported by wealthy women, um, one of whom was, you know, uh, married to someone in Herod's household. Um, and, and one of the coolest, one of the coolest things, and this is, this is, I mean, this is just in the text. The first news of the incarnation was to a woman. The first miracle was performed for a woman. The first Samaritan convert was a woman. The first person clearly told by Jesus that he was a Messiah, that he was Messiah, was a woman and a Samaritan woman as well. The first Gentile convert was a woman. The first resurrection teaching was given to a woman. The first witness to the resurrection was a woman. And women were among the most intimate of Jesus' disciples. Yeah. So at some point, you're like, oh, well, Jesus seemed to really elevate women. And, and not only um, just run-of-the-mill ordinary women, although he did that, but particularly towards women that scandalized yep. the religious leaders, that's where you see him sharing in the shame, the, you know, when he's writing on the ground with the woman caught in adultery. I mean, yep. it's, just, he's, uh, it's no wonder that... that 
one of the knocks against the early church was that the church was made up of women and uh, children and slaves. But one of the most beautiful things about the early church is that it was made up of women and children and slaves, people who were so marginalized in culture, who found dignity and equality in the movement of Jesus. Yeah. So I want to argue that Jesus dignifies women beyond social stereotypes. Yeah. Um, the, the counter to that is, well, yeah, but I mean, he selected 12 men. And, um, and the reason he selected 12 men is, is obvious to anybody with an Old Testament brain. When, when you have 12 men, um, the number 12 uh, and a group of men, that is the 12 tribes of Israel. I mean, that's like instantly. So, so what Jesus is doing in, in choosing the 12 men isn't to say only men can be my disciples because Avi, they're not. <laughs> but what he's saying is um, that I'm reconstituting Israel around me. Yeah. Um, and that, man, that is way more profound. So I don't think the, the gender of the 12 apostles is at issue here as a gender. I think the issue was Jesus was symbolically um, performing the reconstituting of the 12 tribes, um, not around Jacob, but around him. Yeah. Um, so we acknowledge the messiness and complexity of the biblical text. The Bible should be interpreted in alignment or consistent with the life and practice of Jesus. And then, not shockingly, the Bible should be interpreted in alignment with how the story ends. And then it should be interpreted in alignment with how the story begins. And what that means is we get glimpses of the ideal and we dare not baptize the accommodations to the real as the ideal. Yes. Right, so when 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 we read in Genesis three, Which we, we do talk, so well today. We so. do so well. So when we read, you know, a, a woman's desire will be for a husband, and he will rule over you. That that is not that is not the ideal. The ideal was in Genesis one and two. We also get um, an inter interruption of the ideal in Paul's writings. You know, when he talks, like in, in Galatians three. When he's talking about how circumcision is no longer required as a sign for the covenant but baptism, which is interesting because circum circumcision was predominantly a male uh, issue. <laughs> baptism, any, it's open to anybody. Um, but he says, you know, in Christ, there is no more, you know, slave or free, Jew or Greek, male and female. And he quotes Genesis there. And, um, and the idea isn't that we're all equal in Christ. What he's saying is the, the distinctions that previously held weight in a fallen society no longer hold weight in the new inaugurated community. Yeah. So, so there are no gender roles, uh, as far as we can tell, in the end of the story. And we get interruptions of the ideal in the midst of the real. But the, the Genesis accounts are the, the, the clearest articulation of what the ideal was and yeah. in the genesis accounts now again this is where people are really going to push back and i've read articles um arguing that there is hierarchy in genesis 1 and 2 and i couldn't disagree with that anymore uh because the picture we get in genesis 1 and 2 is of first uh both bear the image and they they bear the fullness of the image together yeah. secondly they're both commissioned in the same way 
Thirdly, a gendered man isn't introduced until the end of chapter two. And so we're talking to an ungendered person, an Adam. Yeah. Um, and, and so any of the, the talk about the man, um, you know, being created first, uh, therefore, you know, he is kind of the first in the order of creation. I mean, <laughs> I just don't see that in there. And yeah, then there's some into that in more depth, like two episodes ago, something like that. If people but, are, yeah. Yes, exactly. So all that is to say, wherever it is that we land when we get to First Timothy, or we get to First Corinthians fourteen, um, I'm already coming into those conversations with the with the all of that all of, that, all of those assumptions yeah. brought into it. The Bible's messy, and we're going to find. Um, affirmation and accommodation, and we have to sort out which is which. How do we sort out which is which? Well, whatever our interpretation is, has to be consistent with the practice of Jesus and the teaching of Jesus, consistent with the glimpses of the ideal that we get at the beginning and the end of the story. And then lastly, and this is this is a big one that's going to come into play in uh, 1 Timothy, the Bible should always be interpreted in ways that promote the beauty of the message. Now, here's what I mean by that. When we get to Timothy, one of the things we're going to see, and this is, this, is, this is true of Paul all over the place. Paul will make accommodations to structural and social realities in order to promote the gospel. So what I'm going to argue, the 1 Corinthians 14 passage is, and the 1 Timothy 2 passage are accommodations to promote the spread of the gospel. Now, that, and what I mean is, a woman, let's say, has absolutely no command in the Bible to wear a, a head covering uh, today. Now, I, I think the head covering conversation is clearly something that was situational, and, um, and we'll get to that later. Um, but, but suppose you were in, I don't know, tribal Afghanistan, you were there as missionaries and wanted to promote the beauty of Jesus. Right. And um, it, wearing a head, a head covering would be fitting in uh, and, and allow you to minister in ways that are more effective than not wearing a head covering. When in Rome. Paul would say, wear the head covering. Yeah. Not because you're bound to. Uh, but because it furthers the sake of the gospel. Now, he uses this logic with slaves. He will literally say, be an obedient slave so as to make the gospel attractive. Now, right. that is so foreign to us because we don't care about making the gospel attractive. We care about being right. right. right? So we're willing to make the gospel ugly in order to demonstrate our rightness. That's a whole thing that you know we can get into later. So when we get to places where Paul seems to give commands, and he does this a bunch of different places, not just with women, that, that, that feel to us like, ooh, that seems really weird and backward. Um, I think what he's doing there is he's channeling Jesus into specific cultural forms where he's introducing gospel dynamics into social structures that will ultimately overturn them, exactly. but he's doing it in a way that still honors the social structure for a time so yeah. as to give the, the message of Jesus room to grow and flourish. Yeah. And, and I think he does this all over the place. All right? Yep. Yep. All right. Accommodations to try to 
let the gospel be seen as what it is and what we yeah. see Paul advocate for last week in Ephesians 5 with uh, how you highlighted the inverting of yes. um, how the people who are being marginalized or were seen as less than the culture were always listed first. Yes. So wi- wives to husband or, and children yep. to fathers and slaves to masters. Yes. That accommodation seems like it, it seems like a really, you know, shitty scenario, but it is a way of being able to steer that ship back towards what the gospel is advocating for. Absolutely. While it accommodates the reality of the right. Roman social setting. It's a wide berth sometimes to turn yeah. that ship around. Yes, absolutely. And so if Jesus were walking around today, he'd do the same thing. Yeah. You you pick your battles, right? That just to use like like really pragmatic thinking. Um, if you were going into a culture and that culture worshipped, I don't know, let's say the um uh, the poppy leaf as a religious experience. Um, your first, if you if you're there long term, and you're not one of these, you know, sort of like, hey, I'm just going to have everyone pray a prayer so I look good to my supporters back home. If you're like genuinely interested in the flourishing of the people you're with, that's not the first battle you fight. Yeah, right. You the plant the seed on it and be like, this is a yes. false idol. Yes, yes, and then you and then you immediately you know lose any and die, trust probably. and respect. Who knows? All that is to say, <laughs> um, when we get to the role of women, and I hate that phrase uh, in the Bible, um, those are all the assumptions I'm bringing in. Now, yeah. real quick, in the few minutes we have left, I just want to go over and speed like preview. The positive evidence for women having all sorts of roles in the Old Testament, New Testament. Primarily, we're going to look at New Testament. Um, and I'm and I'm just going to throw this out. This is part of an article Tim and I are working on um, that we want to you know get into the hands of anyone who's who's interested. Um, uh, where is? Hold on. Yeah, here we go. All right. So this is the goal. Is, is simply just to enumerate a whole bunch of stuff, um, you know, to say, well, I mean, okay, yes, there are a couple of, of or, you know, depending, but two big passages, maybe three or four total, where we have to deal with instructions that seem to say women, you know, should fulfill a specific role. But very often, all of the ways that women were, you know, um, highlighted in the ministry of Paul and in a couple of places in the Old Testament, they don't often get the same sort of attention. Yeah. So I'm going to just read this. Women were gifted and spoke as prophets in the early church. Evidently, the gift of prophecy was widespread. Paul's, Paul refers to it several times in Romans, 1 Corinthians, a bunch of times there and in Ephesians. Luke records that the Holy Spirit was poured out on both men and women so they may prophesy. And we know that there were female prophets who exercised that gift in mixed gatherings, including men. We see this in Acts 21 of 1 Corinthians 11, 5. Moreover, the prophetic voice expressed in Christian gatherings served a teaching function. The office of teacher and prophet are linked in Acts 13. Prophets edified and encouraged their listeners 
and those who listen will learn or be instructed by the prophets. All right, and so women were, had prophetic roles all over the place in the early church. Women were teachers in the early church. Priscilla and her husband Aquila were co-workers with the apostle Paul. Her name is usually mentioned first whenever she and her husband are mentioned, which is unusual in the first century, and also suggests she's the most prominent of the pair. In Acts 18, Luke records an encounter with them that they have with a powerful teacher named Apollos. They both took Apollos aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. The word, the Greek word explained is in the third person plural and, apply, and implies they both did the explaining, not just the man. Hmm. Women, thirdly, were deacons in the early church. Phoebe is mentioned in Romans 16 as the one who delivered Paul's letter to the house churches in Rome. Her status also suggests her role as the one who would have read and interpreted the letter to the congregation. Scott McKnight has some great stuff on this. Paul's designation of her as a deacon, deacon is significant in that he uses the same term to refer to himself in Apollos in 1 Corinthians and in many other contexts regarding leadership in the church. Women were apostles in the early church. Junia is mentioned in Romans 16. Um, they, uh, they were outstanding or prominent. among. She is listed as one who is outstanding or prominent among the apostles. Uh, Paul says they were in Christ before I was. There is a really tragic history of obscuring the, the feminine form of her name in translations. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there is simply no male form of that name known to history. That's fascinating. Oh, yeah. It's gnarly. Gnarly. Beth Allison Barr gets into a bit of that. Women were co-workers with Paul in his missionary efforts. Priscilla, Eudodia, Euodia, Euodia, Syntyche, Syntyche are called Paul's co-workers in the ministry of the gospel, the same designation he uses elsewhere of other prominent male leaders. Women were house church leaders, right? So this is the embryonic form of pastor. Chloe was a house church leader in Corinth. Nympha was a house church leader in the vicinity of Colossae. Lydia was the first convert in Asia and seems to be a public leader in Philippi. It is highly likely that the women who were the heads of their households exercised leadership in such settings. Um, Just a couple more. Women Women are mentioned prominently in Paul's greetings. At least 18 women are mentioned in the Pauline letters. 16 are identified by name. Paul mentions these women along with a male relative. Oh, excuse me. Paul mentions some of these women along with a male relative, but most are mentioned independently of a man. Moreover, Paul uses his favorite ministry term, co-worker or deacon or minister, and apostle for both male and female ministry colleagues. Here's a list in alphabetical order of the 18 women of Paul's letters. All right? Lydia, Appia, Chloe, Claudia, Eunice, Eudoia, Eudodia. (laughs) I'll work on that one. (laughs) Julia, Junia, Lois, Mary, Neris' sister, Nympha, Persis, Phoebe, Priscilla, Rufus' mother, Syntyche, Tryphena, Tryphosa, Lydia is mentioned several times in Acts 16 alone. Paul names 29 people in Acts 16 of the 29 tenor women. Uh, what is especially interesting 
is that seven of the ten women are described in terms of their ministry. By comparison in Romans 16, only three men are described in terms of their ministry. Hmm. Now, if you just picked up a Bible and started reading through the letters of Paul, you would not get the conclusion that women were not allowed to be leaders in the church. Yeah. Um, when you get to the pastoral letters, you have um, elders are to be husbands of one wife. So that is often taken as well. See, elders are to be men. Um, and then you have a passage in First Timothy where women, you know, I do not permit a woman to have authority over a man. And we'll get to that passage next week. And then you have First Corinthians uh, 14 where Paul says, I command all women to be silent and yeah. to hold their questions, to ask their husbands at home. So... Um, we're not surprised that there are accommodations to patriarchy. That's what we right. know from the Bible. How do we know what our accommodations versus what the ideal is? Well, we compare it to the ministry practice of Jesus, ministry practice of Paul. We compare it to the beginning of the story and the end of the story. And we look for where Paul might be accommodating in order to promote the gospel. Um, and that's how we're going to handle the, the other set of passages. The, the stuff I just read, the paragraphs of text, that's all just scholarship saying, hey, there were loads of women involved. Right. In, and that's just Paul, right? You have, you have different lists in the life and ministry of Jesus that we've just hinted at. Yeah. So all that is to say, brothers and sisters, when we talk about biblical masculinity, we're resisting the application of any standard beyond the full humanity of Jesus. We're, we're also talking about the full humanity of Jesus as it pertains to anger mm -hmm. and the invitation to, to, to not only feel anger, to express anger in ways that are you know, coherent with new creation dynamics. Yeah. Um, and then we're, we're going to talk about biblical masculinity, not over and against biblical femininity as if biblical masculinity consists in males having certain roles over women. We're going to say, there, this is there no pattern for biblical masculinity. There is no pattern for biblical marriage. And um, the idea that there is, and then maybe if we're really feisty, we're going to go after <laughs> this, the biblical ideal of parenting. Yeah. Uh, because we were handed a book when we were parents called Growing Kids God's Way. Yep. And um, we need to really, we really, really need to go after that too. So I hope this is helpful. Timothy, do you have any last first or middle thoughts nope and there you have it ladies and gentlemen there you have it the <laughs> ratio of words in today's episode mike erie 8920 <laughs> tim stafford 142 that might be accurate <laughs> well now 145 and that is not the ratio we always want but today mikey was a bit rambly because i'm passionate about these sorts of things and, I'm and Tim is too. I mean, good Lord, yes. <laughs> not that you're not. No, it's good stuff. Hopefully it's helpful. You're good stuff. What you, you framed it as accommodation versus affirmation. Mm -hmm. I think that's helpful, a, help, a helpful distinction. Well, there, there's, so there's, there, there's a great book. Ah, oh, dang it. And I knew as soon as, oh, it's called Finally Feminist. And I think it's by John Stackhouse. And in the book... Your brain's I, I, fascinating. Huh? Your brain is fascinating. Oh, well, I... Just I'm reaching out you, to the ether and remembering titles and authors. I don't remember. One million I'm glad, books you've read. I'm glad you think so. But 
His argument, and it's way more sophisticated than this, but his argument is, hey, there are passages on both sides, but it hurts the gospel to not allow women to be in leadership. So if Paul's admonition is to do anything that promotes the gospel, we should be affirming women in leadership. Just to break it to a simple... Yeah, I mean, it was like that. He's yeah. like, in our cultural situation, we're, we're, we're not dealing with... Like, we're putting on head coverings women are free not to. And well, um, with like the... When you reference like the husband, you know, elders only have one wife. How many women were permitted to have more than one husband? Yeah, not none. Yeah, so it's like, it's not... Some of that stuff's just like, it's not like a... It's not a brain buster to look at who were taking multiple partners and who weren't. Totally. And elder, I mean, that, I believe that comes from a synagogue model yeah. where 10 men were required to form, you know, a, a proper Jewish gathering. And so I think elder elders probably were predominantly men because that yeah. was the form that was inherited. Yeah. Um, but when you're when you're looking at women leading house churches um and Paul appointing them right over these little com- communities I'm like well that seems pretty clear <laughs> um and he and in in his letters he will address the women who are leading the house churches yeah and then Scott McKnight has this great uh take on I think it's second or third John where he's addressing a woman who's leading a house church. Mm. Um, and so all that is to say, um, we're not shocked we find both, not at all. Right. Um, in the same way, we're not shocked that there are passages that seem to endorse slavery and passages that seem to overturn it, uh, because we're dealing with the, out, the slow outflowing of, of fallen humanists and God's triaging us towards the ideal. Yeah. Um, but we're going to argue that the that the passages that are typically used against women, those are triages to the real and accommodations to promote the gospel, and they are not in any way, shape, or form the ideal. And they are not consistent with the end of the story, the beginning of the story, and the practice yeah. of Jesus and Paul. So now, It's good that you started from the, not just the messiness of the Bible, but the messiness of humanity, like just how complicated the idea of loving your enemy is within this context as well. Like when I, you were just saying that I was thinking about the, that black man that has um, befriended all the KKK guys we've mentioned him before. And he like slowly befriends them. And then like they end up kind of renouncing their ways and he collects their robes. The, what it takes to, cause he's not affirming the, no. the belief system of the KKK, but he is in some kind of ways accommodating to it to yes. meet and, them and love them in that place to to help them come out of it. Yes. And it's a very compelling, but it's like nobody wants to be, when you think about that scenario, no one wants to, the idea of this black man humbling himself to go and befriend these people who right. live with the vitriol and the hate against him. But then he, he's got like 200 robes in his closet. Yeah. And it's like, that's bananas. That's insane. But Well, that's the incarnation. Yes. Right. That's so what Paul says it. the you incarnation. See, yeah, you is. see that kind of like accommodation can kind of get a I think it has negative impulses to it or it has negative connotations to it that people yeah. will kind of yeah. hold with it. But it's like when you look at what that looks like in a practical sense, yeah. in a world where people choose themselves and choose comfort for whatever reason there is. 
yeah. you really see what happens when somebody enters into a love your enemy situation and steers that ship totally. on a wide berth. Yeah, accommodation doesn't mean let's change the faith in order to make it more palatable. Yeah. Because we have a historic faith that we've inherited. I do think accommodation is part of the gospel story, though. And um, in the example you just gave, in order to be proximate and present with sinners, you get accused of sharing in their sin. And yeah. and that was one of the insulted Jesus. episodes, right? Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And it works. That's yeah. the thing. I know. You said earlier, too, that Jesus was, we look at him as the full representation of God. So that's why we start there and look at things through that. But that he's also the full representation of humanity. And again, I think that's such a huge missed piece. And you look at, I mean, is there anything more accommodating than becoming a human and coming down here and hanging out for 30 plus years and trying to steer that ship. Like, that's, that's it. The ultimate that's ultimate accommodation. Yes. Yes. And the crucifixion. Yeah. I mean, I mean that, that Philippians 2 passage is the heart of Jesus, which means it's the heart of God. Yeah. That rather than hold on to privilege and status, the humbling and sharing yeah. into the disastrous consequences of our sin. He didn't share in our sin, but he shared in what it created. Yeah. Like this man didn't share in their racism, yeah. but he shared in what the racism did and yeah. created. Yeah. Wow. It's a lot of that, work. I'll preach. This gospel yeah. life. Dude, that's why we don't do it. <laughs> yeah. It's just easier to make enemies. Yeah, or just give people defined roles and then stay in them. Yeah, God bless us. So, brothers and sisters, <laughs> you don't have to take our word for this stuff. Man, there's there are so many great books out there. Too many. Too many. You can get lost forever in the arguments and the counter arguments. But the biggest thing we want to keep conveying is the the impulse to define biblical X or Y or Z is wrong and not biblical at all. Yeah. Um, so, so let's resist in joyful non-compliance, the standard set out for us about what it is to be a man or to be a woman or to be married or to be single or to be parents. Are there, is there wisdom in all those places? Of course there is wisdom and the Bible's full of it. Absolutely. But to turn wisdom into patterns or to turn accommodations into the ideal, man, we want to resist all of that in the name of our Jesus. So until next time, friends. Joy as an act of resistance. Yes. Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard. Yes. Dallas Willard, your buddy, calls it joyful, joyful noncompliance. Yeah. And I love that. I love it. I love it. Now, there's something you could do with your anger, right? Hmm. You you wrestle with it so that you can become joyfully noncompliant. So my noncompliance is an out of anger, vengeance. But my non-compliance is out of joy and fighting an for full humanity. Worship idea, right? D. Willie, dude, that guy knows D. stuff. D. Willie, yeah, <laughs> yep. I held his hand once. I'll always, t- I'll always remind you of that. We were in a prayer circle. I held his hand. It was large. And you didn't let go awkwardly after. Well, I didn't wipe. You know how sometimes you you're praying and then you kind of subtly wipe after the yeah. prayer. I didn't wipe. And you still haven't. And I still haven't. <laughs> it is my right hand. Y'all, so I shake hands with my left. Anyway. Oh, boy. May the Lord bless you and keep you. 
May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you. And in these days, may he give us peace. See you next time, friends. Thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to this conversation. Voxology is a 501c3 nonprofit organization that is supported by listeners just like yourself. If you'd like to partner with us, you can do so at patreon.com backslash Voxology. You can also join the community and hang out and chat with us on the socials facebook.com backslash voxology podcast and on instagram at voxology thank you thank you thank you for walking the long road with us